you will be surprised how quickly you can start making money food blogging. And you don't even have to worry about trying to be perfect. You don't even have to be the best cook. Food blogging pro Megan Porta is here to talk you through it. Plus, if you're not happy with how much money you have right now, chances are it's probably because of three things. The endowment effect, loss aversion, and the status quo effect. Economist Grandpa Mark is here to explain how behavioral economics trips us up every time. And also today, we're going to talk about how influence spending is in the billions with a B. Marketers start directly targeting your kids as young as eight months old. So you need to step in and get ahead of it. We're going to tell you exactly how to do that. Thank you for taking time to be here to follow and share the podcast. You are a strong, confident woman. You do not want to blindly delegate the finances to somebody else anymore. You absolutely can do this. At least have a good understanding of what your options are. And if you're a mom like me, then you probably share that common desire to be a good role model and to teach our kids the valuable lessons that they're not getting enough of in school. All right, so before we get to food blogging and how to make some good money from it. Let's start the show with no dumb questions. Welcome, Professor Emeritus at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and author of Teachers Can Be Financially Fit, economist Mark Shug, as we call him, lovingly refer to him as Grandpa Mark. How are you? I am just great. How are you doing, Sandy? Good. Okay, so now this is an interesting topic because Really, if you were to ask anybody what's the right way to run your finances, your budget, everyone pretty much knows live beneath your means. I mean, we know what we need to do, but for some reason, it's tough. And why is that? Why don't we actually act on what we know we need to do? And it's all about behavioral economics, right? Well, behavioral economics does uh, address a lot of financial issues. It addresses a really quite a wide range of uh, behavior, but you're right. Uh, a lot of the research has to do with financial mistakes that people make. So we, we like to draw a distinction between econs and humans. Okay. So <laughs> e Econs are these carefully calculating costs, benefits, uh, calm, trying to look for long-term careful decision maker. And then there are humans. And, and humans certainly are interested in costs and benefits, uh, but unlike econs, they have emotions. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and their emotions and kind of rules of thumb and you know, probability theory is kind of tricky. And when you're making a decision, you, you may not always get the math right, you know, right away. And so, so the behavioral economists are coming to the idea that people, there are areas where people kind of consistently make the same mistakes mm. and they try to work with folks to come up with ways to try and nudge them a little over to be making uh, decisions that are more in their self-interest. They're trying to make a decision in their self-interest. That's what economics says. All people are trying to make decisions in their self-interest. But sometimes the decision might not actually be in their self-interest uh, when, when you use the cold econ calculation. Well, it's funny because we could convince ourselves if we want something bad enough, we will convince ourselves why it's the smartest decision ever. And, it, and if you're looking at it from an econ perspective, you're like, what are you? That's ridiculous. But yet 
we somehow convince ourselves. So what are those areas you're referring to, the common mistakes that we make in this area? Well, one of the things has to do with what's called the endowment effect. It, it, and uh, that means when you own something, it changes your attitude toward it. And that could be your home. Uh, it could be your car. It could be a pair of shoes. You, you buy a pair of shoes that you think are wonderful. You pay a lot of money for them. Then you bring them home. It turns out they're uncomfortable. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to admit that you made a mistake buying these shoes? Or no, you gonna, not to your husband. <laughs> so there's a, so once it's a value, it sort of like changes your. It's still just the thing, but yeah. it kind of changes your emotions. And then we call this kind of leads to something called loss aversion, where people seem to hate losing more than they enjoy winning. And and when you think about it. Uh, you know, P even Peter Lynch says it's harder to sell a stock than to buy a stock. But if you, if you may, you know, let's, Richard Thaler says, Richard Thaler is a Nobel Prize winning economist and behavioral economist. He won the Nobel Prize in 2017. He says, people are reluctant to sell a stock that they've lost money on. If you sell a stock that's gone down, you have to admit to yourself, you made a mistake, like the, that pair of shoes in the back of the closet. Whereas if you hold on to it, there's hope that maybe someday the shoes will fit, maybe someday the stock wow. will be better. And, and so it's easy, it's kind of easy to buy, it's an adventure, but when it comes to, hey, this, this thing's a dog, I need to get rid of this thing, uh, but I keep holding on to it. And there's, this is also related to another thing called the, the status quo effect. And this is really important for investing, that there's a tendency for us to sort of put our savings and investments in motion and then just leave them alone, right? So your new employee, you sign up for the 401k, company has a 5% match, you match up to the 5% and then you never think about it again. Yeah. Whereas you should be thinking about it every year. You should be thinking about it all the time. You should be thinking about how you can increase up to the maximum the government permits. Mm. Uh, and, and this is where, uh, Richard Thaler and uh, his colleagues really did something very famous. They, they wrote about 401ks and, and said that uh, they had a, yeah, they did a study. Actually, I think the study was done by Vanguard. Most big companies would say, you have to opt into our 401k plan. Here's the little paperwork, take two minutes. And at that time, only 37% of employees opted in. And because of Thaler's research, now he's at the University of Chicago, uh, he said, no, no, we should automatically enroll people. They should be opted in automatically. And then if they want to opt out, they have to fill out the paperwork. Well, when companies moved to that, they got 87% of the people. Wow. Now, just think about that. Now, that's and that was not too long ago, right? Wasn't that? It's been within the last few years. Uh, Thaler says, my mantra is in designing policies, to make it easy for people to do something. Uh, if, it's, if it's what we would call the right thing to do and having a 401k is better uh, than not having a 401k. So most large firms today have an automatic enrollment plan, an automatic escalation plan. So let's say you go up 5% every year. So unless you change it, so it's taking that status quo effect uh, uh, and just and using it to your advantage, uh, just giving you a bunch of automatic options that are better than the alternative. And if you still want to go in and actively, more actively manage things, well, that's just great too. But yet, how do we 
combat all those other things that you mentioned? Is there something that we can do with those first two things that normal humans deal with every day? Uh, that's tougher. You're right. Uh, because now you have to admit you may potentially made a mistake <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and to get on with it. So, that, you know, what I would encourage people just to maybe even buy Richard Thaler's book. I buy my book too, but you know, uh, <laughs> Thaler's book, uh, it's called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. It's a very easy book to read, very simple. There's, I mean, when you're talking about Nobel Prizes being won, there's like three or four that have been won uh, by behavioral economists. Mm. Uh, you don't get a Nobel Prize by just being nice. I mean, you really have to have some <laughs> top end research going on. Uh, and the beauty of these people that I, I find so interesting, uh, like a Richard Thaler, is he can write so well, and he's just got his great personality. You go to YouTube, and you know, you go to his website. You you know, it's not like he's he's another grandpa figure, if you like. Do you think it's just reading the book, absorbing it, and just recognizing it, and then forcing yourself to make a change if you're making those bad money decisions? One of the best concepts I love in economics is called sunk cost, S-U-N-K, sunk. And you have to sort of know, and this is where I think economists, regular econ, the econs make a, a, a real contribution. Uh, if you bought a stock and it's a dog, it's a dog. It's a sunk cost. You got to get past it. Uh, if you bought a condo at 500000 and you can only sell it for 400000 and you've been on the market for a month or a year, uh, you got to get over it, man. Uh, that's a sunk cost. You know, it's just not going to go anywhere. Now, today, it's that's a, not a good example in today's real estate market. But, uh, you know, so to learn how to accept a loss, say, I can't go back. I, I like to use the example, you go to a movie, you pay 12 bucks to go to a movie, you sit down, and 20 minutes into it, it's awful. So what wow. are you going to do? Are you going to stay or are you going to go? Okay. If you're an econ, you're going to go. You'll say, <laughs> uh, that cost is, you know, oh, but I paid $12. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, you can't get your money's worth. That's what we all say. I'm going to sit here and suffer for the next 90 <laughs> minutes because I paid $12. No, I'm not. <laughs> if, if you think that uh, that movie's going to get better, then you should keep your butt right in the seat. But if you believe this is the worst film you've ever seen, then you should leave and go next door and have a hot fudge sundae and a cup of coffee. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know what? Next time I think I want to talk to your wife. Married to the econ guy, which must make for great conversations. <laughs> well, she doesn't care much for economics. <laughs> Does she do any like hidden purchases where she doesn't run them by you? No. You, you would no, have our, no our, idea. Our, you would have no idea. <laughs> well, maybe I'm mistaken, but after 52 years of marriage, I, I think we know what's going on. Oh, she did show right. me that she bought a Cinco de Mayo t-shirt uh, that I didn't know about. It's oh, okay. <laughs> oh, Grandpa Mark, you're the best. All right. Professor Emeritus at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, the econ. Uh, author of Teachers Can Be Financially Fit. Get that book. It's a really good book too. And uh, thank you so much for your time. All right, Sandy. This is always a lot of fun. Quit that day job and start making good money blogging? Hey, it might be the perfect fit for you. We'll find out. Food blogging pro Megan Porta joins us next. Hip and 
Abby.com is the food blog. Podcast is Eat Blog Talk. Megan Horda is here. How are you? I'm so good. It's so good to be talking to you, Sandy. Okay, I am just going to come on out and confess that I am a, a complete disgrace to the Italian culture. I disappoint my mother daily because I will not be passing down any family recipes <laughs> because I'm clueless and am not a very good cook at all. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but I lean on you and food bloggers like yourself to hold my hand and show me how to cook a meal that my family wants to eat. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're here for. That is, that is why we exist. So I am so fascinated by food blogging, by just blogging in itself. So the pandemic, I think for a lot of people made us just kind of reevaluate everything, right? Our priorities, not only you know, where we're spending our money. That was one thing that was like a aha moment for a lot of us, but it's also like, what are we doing with our time? How much time are we spending with the family versus work? And I know a lot of moms, I mean, they refer to it as a she session because a lot of moms had to, you know, work from home or get out of the, the corporate world to take care of their kids. But this for you, this is your livelihood. I mean, you work from home and that was your drive too, to be home with the kids more, right? Yes, absolutely. And the pandemic really changed kind of the way food bloggers run their businesses too, which was really interesting because, I mean, as you know, we went into the pandemic, not knowing what was going on, what was going to happen. We were all like a year ago. It's so weird that it's been a year, but we were like, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And food bloggers were the same. We were like, is this going to destroy our businesses? Are people going to stop coming to our site? So it was really interesting to see how it evolved. Um, I don't know oh, if you want- See, now I yeah. thought that you would initially think, oh yeah, more people are gonna be leaning on us because we're all cooped up at home. I mean, that's when I know I was like, okay, where's the, where's the who can I go to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting because I remember within our community, a lot of people were really nervous and they were like, well, what if my audience goes away? Because we didn't know about, you know, people not having resources anymore. What if they um, simplify and just make chicken breasts every night? We just didn't oh, know what people were okay. going to do. But it turned out that people actually came to food blogs more often and our traffic overall for most speaking for most food bloggers our traffic went way way up and then it was kind of a weird situation because a lot of us make revenue from ads um, advertising and the advert the people putting money into the advertising um, didn't know what was going on either so they kind of minimized their budgets oh so while our traffic went way up their budgets went way down <gasps> so we actually didn't make any more money it, it kind of evened out, but it was really interesting to see how that all played out. Okay. Now I do want to touch on, uh, before we leave the whole money side of it and how to make money, but first is mommy bloggers and food bloggers. Is it all the same? Do you not like the phrase mommy bloggers or food bloggers? I want to make sure we're politically correct here. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not offended by much. Okay. <laughs> I'm not offended by mommy <laughs> bloggers, but I mean, a lot of food bloggers are also mommy bloggers but they're, they can be very separate too. Like you can blog about parenting and not much about food. 
And most food bloggers blog mostly about food with just sprinkling in okay. tidbits about their family. At this point, though, because there's a lot of people who are thinking, oh, my God, maybe this is an opportunity for me to work at home. And maybe this is the pivot in my career that I want to do. But at this point, do you feel like it's is it almost too saturated to jump in? Or do you think there is enough room for even new people to come in? There is always room. And I have seen bloggers start food blogs within the past year. So since the pandemic and just killed it because really? they found a niche that was really um, un like undersaturated. There, it was something that either people in the pandemic needed or there's this one woman blogger who she saw the need to really dive into how to make sourdough bread. Her niche is how to make sourdough bread. I mean, that you cannot get more niche than that, but she's doing amazing. I mean, just the fact that she found something so um, specialized, I think that's the key yeah. right now because it, like you said, it is super saturated. There are so many food blogs. So yes, you should do it if you want to. It's a great way to make money. It can be so lucrative, but if you do it, don't come in with like this big generalized um, recipe database. You know, I'm going to cook dinners and breakfast and dessert. You have to come in at this point and be really, really, really specific and then be more specific. You know, like if you think it's specific, go a little bit more <laughs> specific until oh, it really? kind of, until it kind of hurts. And then you're like, Ooh, that's vegan cooking maybe, okay, that's not specific enough. So vegan desserts, that's not even specific enough because there are a lot of vegan dessert blogs. So, so then you go, okay, well maybe like vegan cakes or, you know, like you, you just have to keep going. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, see, that's what would make me nervous. If you go too niche, how much, how much material do you have? How long is that going to last you? Well, there's, that's the great thing about food is that you never run out of material because okay. even if you, get to a point where you're like, Ooh, what am I going to make next week? You can dive into instructions. Like if you do vegan cakes, well, you can talk about how to, um, ice the cakes in different ways, or you can start talking about frostings or how to uh, decorate, you know, like okay. there's so many okay. different, or you can do roundups even that's a more popular thing now where you can gather some of your own content and other people's content and put them together in a roundup post. So there you don't ever run out of material. I don't think. Okay. Yeah. What's your niche then at uh, Pip and Abby? Okay. So I started blogging over 10 years ago. And at that point there were no niches. Everyone was just like, let's make whatever. And the blogs that started back then kind of have gotten away with it. They kind of got grandfathered in, in a way. Um, so since then I have had to find a niche because I get lost in the sea as well. So my niche is easy comfort food recipes with very few ingredients, very few instructions, but also I focus on this, um, message of you gather your people, whether that's for dinner or Thanksgiving or whatever you feed your people and you actually enjoy your people. So I focus on how to make sure that happens. So getting food ready, I talk a little bit about um, like, you know, prep your vegetables ahead of time and then you can save energy when you're actually serving the oh, meal. Oh, so, I love this. 
That's yeah. Check, check, <laughs> check everything I'm looking I know, for. <laughs> right. I feel like every mom, wife, woman, really like you don't even have to be a mom or wife appreciates that because we've all been at the dinner table or at a holiday dinner where we're exhausted and we're like, I don't even enjoy what's going on here because I spent so much of my energy preparing the food that I just want to go take a nap. (laughs) Everybody, now I don't cook. I'll I'll admit to my husband does the Thanksgiving dinner. We have it at our house. He does all the cooking, but I do the cleaning. And I think that's a big (laughs) task. So at the end, (laughs) all I do. Disclaimer, I do the cleaning. (laughs) Yes, I do, but it's a lot of work. And you know, those Thanksgiving dishes, there's like a dish for everything, but everybody's putting on their shoes and coat and ready to leave. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just sitting down from the kitchen sink over here. Wait, yeah, (laughs) the party is ending because I'm just starting. But so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that is real. Okay. So give us like a little, and you're going to have to, again, dumb this down for some people like me. The food blogging 101. How do we even start? Where do, where do we start? Yeah, so you need a website. So I recommend WordPress. So you get a WordPress site. You, get, you have to buy a theme. You have to purchase a theme to go along with it, which sounds complicated, but it's really not. Okay. Um, and then you just start creating your content. So you figure out your niche. That's super important. Don't just start putting random stuff up mm-hmm. um, and then you create recipes so you do recipe development and then you take the recipe and you make it you test it you know that's probably smart because <laughs> I, or, or, early on I would just throw stuff up there and I was like it turned out kind of but I <laughs> to put it now I'm way way like those recipes have all been removed from my site Okay. But yeah, <laughs> recipe now, testing. Do you, when you, you refer to WordPress, isn't that a free? Is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So WordPress is free. So the thing that you pay for is the theme and the theme oh. is kind of how you structure your content inside of WordPress. Um, and again, it sounds like, oh, that's confusing. But once you see it, it's, it's not it's super I mean, easy. It's super easy. So you don't have to go over the top elaborate with the website design or anything keep it simple okay yeah keep it simple I do recommend you don't have to start with this but I do recommend eventually either creating a logo yourself that looks really nice or paying someone to do that because I go to food blogs all the time I'm like I'm sure their recipes are great but this kind of looks like crap you know you you want something that looks nice and is clean and like I have an aversion to like really horrible looking websites and I personally wouldn't dig into their recipes if I saw you know that they had put like two seconds into a logo or maybe you don't even have a logo so eventually that is something that I think you should spend money on and you don't have to spend much you can get a logo made for really affordably so it's worthwhile when I think of food blog mommy blog any kind of blog like that I think perfection. Mm. That's perfect. So yeah, if their logo is crap, then they're just right down at my level. So <laughs> is it, do you feel that pressure to be perfect? Cause you're in this oh. world of, I mean, all these pictures are so amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the hard things and not just for me, but I talk to a lot of food bloggers and that is a common thread across the board. People complain all the time. Like, how can I do this? Everyone else is so great. Their photos are perfect. And 
their content, their recipes all look perfect. Their accounts on social media look perfect. And it's so easy to get caught up in just feeling like you're not enough. Mm -hmm. So it, I think that does require just time and getting to that mature blogging place where you're confident in what you do and what you deliver. Um, but it is, that's a process that is part of it. And it's one of the big, big hangups. Hmm. Okay. So start with the web, not even start with, would you start with camera equipment or would you say your phone no. is fine? Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. if you are considering doing this, don't, don't go and invest a ton of money in equipment because I, I don't know, it's just, in my opinion, it's not worth it. So start with what you have. If you have an iPhone, even if it's not the newest iPhone or whatever phone, I'm not familiar with other phones really, but I'm sure all the cameras are wonderful. Start there. I know bloggers who take nothing but iPhone pictures and you would never know. They're so beautiful. So um, there's this thing outside called the sun and it has... <laughs> I don't the, see it a lot here, but yeah, okay. I, know, I haven't seen it in a while, but I think it's there. Um, but yeah, it provides perfect lighting. I mean, I, people try to replicate that lighting and it, it's impossible. Um, you can get close with a lot of practice with artificial lights, but I never use artificial lighting. I use the sun, even if it's cloudy, I use the sun and I have a camera that I love, but I um, have kind of grew into my camera and did a lot of research. And I had a camera before I started food blogging. So I was practicing with my mm. boys when they were little, but I recommend just get started with what you have, which it, everything is free. Like you already have the phone. The sun is free. <laughs> okay. So we got the phone, we got the sun, we got WordPress, we got our theme, we got our niche. <laughs> we got, uh, now the whole, because it, it, it's almost like a story that you guys tell when you do, how important is that in the, you know, the priority list here? That's a great question too. So it used to be that it was okay to go on and tell this whole long narrative about this recipe and your life and what's going on. But that is not the case anymore. So Google has really cracked down on what they prioritize when it comes to what appears in the search rank rankings. So they have made it very clear that they don't really want your, you know, like longs. You can say some things about your life and your family. And like, if, if this is a family recipe, mention that, but just don't go into a lot of detail, but they have kind of a structure that they like. So mm. we all we each come up with our own template, what works for us. And I have my own version and it's kind of templated, like why this recipe works, two paragraphs, um, recipe ingredients. And then I go through the main ingredients in the recipe and just talk about main points, um, how to make this recipe. And then you go through a couple paragraphs, step one, step two, step three, and then you provide photos. So, you know, if you have like, a bowl full of ingredients include that because people like to see what they're doing um and then recipe notes and then if there are any frequently asked questions about the recipe you include that and then you do related links so you want people to start clicking over to your other content you don't just want them to stay on that recipe so if i'm showing a chili recipe i might include a link for instant pot chili 
and also maybe um you know like bread to go as a side or a salad or something like that and then the recipe card that has all the details about I'm sure you've seen a recipe card before on on a food blog um how to make it what the ingredients are time investment and all of that and then clicking on those links now let's go into where how we make money from this yeah. Because I think making the money and marketing it, making yours stand out are the next two big questions, right? Yeah. So making money, um, some people have a huge challenge with this and they get hyper-focused on it. And honestly, I see this all the time, Sandy. It's so, it's so hard because I'm like, you have too tight of a grip. You need to let go a little bit and just oh. relax. You know, it's like that with everything in life, right? Like if you are just like, why, why can't, why is it here? Why is it here? Then it's not going to come. So it's kind of the same thing. A lot of bloggers have that issue where it's like, they want to get into an ad network to get ads on their site. And they get so focused on that, that it just takes a really long time for it to happen. So getting ads on your site is a really good first option because once you have those ads, it's kind of like passive income. So you can just sit back and keep creating content and keep putting good stuff up. But having those ads there is, it's just like a peace of mind. Like, okay, I am making money. Even if it's not a ton, you're making something. So you can put your own ads on your site through places like Google AdSense. Don't recommend that because their ads are really low quality. You'll see stuff like fingernail fungus you know and you're like I'm looking at a chili recipe and I don't you know so it's like um, and also those ads can really slow down your site which is a ranking factor for Google so if you have a really slow page speed Google's like "Uh, no thank you so you have to be super picky with the ads that you put on your So what, where would you go to look for good quality ads then? Yeah. So there are two main ad networks in the food blog and not just food blogging. They do kind of like health lifestyle, you know, across the board, they do a bunch of different um, topics, but there are two main ones, Mediavine and AdThrive. So they manage your ads for you. They manage what ads go on. They manage things like, you know, page speed. They keep an eye on that. And then they also um, manage where they go on your site and on your, on mobile devices too. And you have no say in any of that? You do. So if if I see an ad come up that doesn't align with my brand. So let's say I'm vegan and like an ad comes up that has like a big hunk of meat on it or something. Maybe I wouldn't like that. So I can say, oh, you know, can you guys please not put meat? So you can request things like that. Um, But you have to get to a certain page view threshold in order to get considered for these ad networks. So that's why people are like, oh, why can't I get there? But once oh. you get there, it's it's great. I mean, oh, it's so nice. It's just like this kind of baseline revenue that does fluctuate throughout the year, but it's still there. It's always- On average though, how much are we talking? Once you get to that point where you got a couple ads up? Well, it, it depends on your traffic. So if you're, so for Mediavine, for example, you need 50,000 page views a month in order to- get their ads. For AdThrive, you need 100,000 page views a month 
to get their ads. So if you have 50,000 page, I don't remember <laughs> because it's, it's been a while for me. Um, but you know, like I would say a thousand dollars a month minimum ish, you know, okay. to okay. start, like so, once you okay. get on, it's, it's, just it's a like, lot of page views though. 50,000, a hundred thousand. How do we, how do we cut through and get that number of page views? Is it through the social media platforms that you have um, to just making sure you keep adding quality content to your site and a big key factor there is making sure you're putting the right content on your site because mm. I did the I did that so wrong for so many years I was like oh everyone wants to know about this weird salad recipe that I just came up with that has grapes and pecans and feta cheese and I didn't I didn't know that nobody else wanted that but <laughs> You actually have to research because it is so saturated. You have to research what keywords people are actually looking for. And there are a few key keyword research tools you can do that with. And it is worth the money. It's worth your time ah. because once you start figuring out what people are actually looking for, then you can curate recipes and posts based on that information. And then Google sees you more and then you get more traffic and okay. Yeah. So keyword research is a really big piece of it that I ignored for many, many years. I wish is I wouldn't have. There, is there a website? I feel like I downloaded a program on my computer to keyword research. Not that I ever use it, but what is, which one would you recommend? Yeah, is there an yes. easy go-to? Yep. So a lot of them are paid. So for a while, a lot of bloggers were doing SEMrush, SEMrush and it's really expensive. So mm. uh, what we've kind of learned <laughs> collectively is that it's not worth the money. Um, I Some people believe that it is. So I'm not saying that, you know, like everyone believes that, but it was really, it's like a hundred dollars a month. And that was just too much for. No, I'm not doing that. Keywords. Give me a cheaper one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not about that one. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> What's the <Yes>. better one? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, this is a great one that I use. I use keywords everywhere. It's just keywords everywhere.com and you can buy like, um, credits. I think it's like 80,000 credits for like $10 and these credits last forever. So you just, all you do is you type a keyword. I just typed one this morning. I have it right here. I'm researching my everything bagel seasoning because I have a copycat recipe for the Trader Joe's, um, seasoning. Ah, okay. And so I just typed in to Google everything bagel seasoning, and then you can click on the keywords everywhere um, uh, thing, plugin or whatever it is. And then it comes up with all of these different variations of that phrase. And it tells you how many people are searching for it. And so you can oh, kind of okay. like wade through the information and figure out, cause you don't want, you don't want a key phrase that is too competitive. Um, so everything bagel seasoning has a search volume of 165,000. That's a lot. So you want something more. Oh, so that's not niche enough. You got to find not niche something. enough. Okay. You got to get down. So then I landed on, um, this one, how to make everything bagel seasoning because only 2,400 people search for that. So I took that and then I now make that my key phrase within my post because Google is going to be like, Oh, not as many people search for that. So they're going to rank me higher so that the people who do type that in will see me hopefully on page one, as opposed to probably page oh. seven. 
Oh, see, now I was thinking if not a lot of people, oh, I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Because for a second there, I was thinking, well, if not enough people are Googling that, then maybe they're not Googling it to find you. But you're saying, no, the complete opposite. Find yeah. those opportunities to be that one in a small group. As exactly. To, okay. All right. Um, okay. So now just get out there consistency. I am assuming you're going to say to put out good product, do the Google searching. You got your beautiful website. You got your beautiful logo. You got the beautiful sun. <laughs> uh, how long will it take to get to the point where, okay, I'm leaving my corporate job. I'm pivoting in my career. I'm staying home with the kids and my family, and I'm going to become just a blogger. How long is it going to take me to make money where I don't feel stressed? Yeah, it depends on your level of dedication, honestly, because some bloggers get in and they're like, oh, this is a lot of work because it is a lot of, I mean, it's, I'm not saying that it's not hard work. It is hard work. Oh, you have yeah. to put in the work, but some people give up or they get frustrated and they, they aren't consistent and they don't put in the work consistently. So if you are consistent and you're dedicated, um, you can I've seen people do it in a few months. I mean, that's an exception. That's an anomaly. But I've I've also seen people, like I said earlier, with the pandemic, like finding a niche there who have done it in less than a year. So if you find a really good niche, if you keyword research like crazy, um, if you produce consistent quality content, you can do it relatively quickly. Um, but you need, you do need all of those things in place. You can't like, you can't do just a few of them. Can't you skip a step. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you help people too. You coach people, bloggers on this journey, right? Yes. Yep. There are a lot of bloggers who want that, who have been doing it for maybe even a few years. And they're like, why can't I make money? Where's the money? So I, through my podcast and through my membership site, I help people just kind of like take a few steps back. Is your niche niche enough? Are you going through the right steps? And then we started going through like creating a customer avatar. Um, like who is your ideal customer and creating that exact mm. person and figuring out um, who you're actually serving because that was another mistake I made for a lot of years was I was providing recipes to, I don't, I didn't even know who I was like, someone here, where are you? <laughs> but then I realized that you need like one person. What is that one person's struggles? Because when you have that person, you know exactly what to give them. If you can put a name to that person, my, my person's name is Jane. I know exactly what she needs for me because she's tired at the end of the day and she works. And so you've got to get really clear on that and then just make a plan. I think that's, a big point with any business for an entrepreneur, but for food blogging, so many people go into it without a plan and they don't really even know what they're working on. They're like mm. at the store and they're like, Oh, I think I'll make um, a chickpea salad today. Cause there's chickpea, you know, they don't have a plan. They don't uh, know yeah. why they're making what they're making. They don't know when they don't have a calendar that keeps them on, on schedule. So that's a, the planning is a really big piece of it too. Before you went and, and achieved success in this area, were you in the corporate world ever? Or were you always an entrepreneur? No, I was in the corporate world for, since college, I worked there for way too long. And 
It you was, don't miss it? No, it was so rough. And really, oh my god, I'm so curious yeah. about this whole thing because I think I'm too chicken to go full on entrepreneur. I think I like my cushy little oh. radio job. But so I'm so interested when I when I talk to entrepreneurs, like you never look back and regret. You are totally all on board with this. Oh my gosh, no. I was kind of forced out of it too. I got fired, Sandy. I was fired from my job. I had this horrible boss come in. I had such a track record of performing well. I mean, I've always taken my job seriously. Yeah. And then this guy came in and just... Um, like he spent a year trying to bring me down. He was so evil and terrible. It was the worst year of my life. It was horrible. Oh my God. You were so sweet too. Like you. <laughs> he was mean. Like I could tell you some stories that were, that were horrible. Like my son had a heart surgery during that year. And two weeks after his surgery, I came back to work and he was like, I know you just went through something big, but you need to be okay now. And I need your like 100%. And I was like, I am not at 100%. Aww. I was going through like PTSD from just being in the hospital with him. And it was, Aww. you know, it was like, I, I told him, I was like, I am not going to be 100%. And he was like, well, then um, things are going to have to change. And that meant you're on your way out. So then he, from that point wow. on, he went to get me out. And by the end of the year, he let me go. And <sighs> so I was forced, but looking back, thank Blessing. God, because I don't know how long it would have taken me to make that decision for myself. I'm so grateful every day that he did that, even though he was a big jerk. <laughs> Do you send him flowers every year? You should, should. on the anniversary. You should be like, I thank totally you should. for being such an ass because my yeah. life is so much better. <laughs> I, I love that because that's also an, an act of forgiveness. Like, like if I'm not just doing it to be a jerk back, if I'm like, seriously, thank you. Cause I am so grateful. I should totally do that. No, you know what you should do? Brainstorm. You should create a recipe, right? And post this recipe and send him whatever it is, a cake or whatever this recipe. And it's the, uh, Thank you. You were an ass, but I appreciate your <laughs> recipe or something. <laughs> Tied into that. the food blog somehow, but yet send him oh that gosh. too. Oh yes. We are, we're brainstorming here, people. That is such, I don't know why I haven't done that. What's his <laughs> name? Can we say his name? No, we can't say, no, we can't, we can say his first name. We can't Felipe. say his last name. Felipe. Felipe. Oh my God. The Felipe Torte. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> My, here's something funny. My boys are really into Legos and they give each Lego a name and they like have extensive stories and histories. So Felipe is a Lego figure in our house and he dies repeatedly. He is tortured and killed. Oh my God. I wonder where they got that from. Well, now they can celebrate the death. With the Felipe Torte. <laughs> Repeatedly. Over and over. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Awesome. So, <laughs> so now if this has piqued an interest, if you're like, yes, I want in, and it doesn't necessarily have to be food blogging, it could be anything, design. I don't know what else is out there. I'm so not a crafty person at yeah, all, but any of that, right. you can help. Yep. You could, you can offer up guidance and assistance. So go to the podcast is called eat blog talk and the website is pipandabby.com and spell out a and D and 
ebby.com yep. and it's Megan Horda. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, Sandy. This was so fun. And I always love talking to you. Influence spending doesn't only cost parents billions, that's with a B, every year, but it also causes a lot of added stress. What you need to do to step in and get ahead of it, grab a chair, we take a seat at the kids' table next. All right, welcome to the kids' table. Yes, we're going to take a seat at the kids' table. We got our money expert over here, Susan Beecham, founder of Money Savvy Generation. How are you? Hey, Sandy, good. This is an interesting one. I found a very fascinating study out of the University of Arizona, and they just released it, and it found that the more kids watch TV, and I'm going to put in YouTube in there because that's the form of TV for our kids, The more advertising they're exposed to, which now they're saying directly is tied to a parent's overall stress level. So just think about that for a second. And we're going to ask the kids, what was that one thing that they really wanted? And they want it because they saw it on one of their games or a YouTube video. So here's what the kids said. What was something that you wanted to buy after seeing it on a YouTube video? The LOL Playhouse. Because there's all different ways you can use it and it comes with all different stuff. What is something you want to buy after seeing it in a YouTube video or in one of the games on your phone? Merch. Merch? A shirt. Who is your favorite YouTuber? Unspeakable. And why do you like Unspeakable? He's funny. What kind of videos does Unspeakable make? Minecraft. So why did you want his shirt so much? I thought it looked cool. What is something you've seen on YouTube that you really wanted to buy? Um, the American Girl Doll School. How about on a video game? Uh, Speed Boots. Speed Boots? Where'd you see that? Mega Fun Abby. Mega Fun Abby? Is that a game? Yeah. Who? You heard Who? about where? Wait, what? What? <laughs> marketers are good at what they do. And now we know that it it creates stress for parents. So this this study says that, you know, when you go to the store, your kids, because they've been exposed so much, are going to ask for things more. And the stress lingers beyond the shopping trip, which is fascinating. Well, there's two things here. There's one, um, a couple of years ago, they were tracking how much kids spend annually, mm. and it was in the billions Jeez. with a B. And the spend of their own money, so this is money they had in hand, was in the billions with a B. So it was seventeen billion annually, thirty billion of their own money. But then there was this one statistic that really got me: the influence spending. That's what you're talking about the amount of money parents spend at their child's urging. That was $150 billion. Gosh. I get it. These YouTubers, they're working hard. They're, they're putting out a product. We all do it. That's fine. They deserve to make money. But when you are directly, directly targeting children and marketing to them, that's what just drives me crazy. Marketers will start marketing to your children around eight months old. They have pitches that they direct to audiences that are as young as eight months. Eight months? So I don't know how they do it, Sandy. (laughs) I have no clue. I have no clue. But what it does tell you is that marketers start young. 
because they understand um, the more impressions that they make, the more likely you are to think that you want it and then you need it. So what do we do as parents? How do we, how do we fight back? Well, here's what, as parents, what we do is we understand the long-term impact of a child who has been marketed to and has not had the same equal message from us and our family values. Mm. Um, so long-term effect, just to motivate parents to pay attention to what I'm going to say here. Uh, university administrators, they report losing more students to credit card debt than to academic failure. Wow. 50, little over 50% of college age adults agreed with this statement. I have experienced repeated unsuccessful attempts to control, cut back, or stop excessive money use. Those messages that come so innocently in YouTube videos, in online uh, games, they are shaping your child's behavior. My favorite was uh, Shopping Barbie. Um, Shopping Barbie had a tiny little credit card, something no parent could see. And when I took a magnifying glass to it, it was a fully branded credit card, fully branded with a named credit card company. And when you took Shopping Barbie's credit card and you pushed it through the cash register, it said credit approved, credit approved. Uh, I think my kids have that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had had yeah. So I had two. And I was kind of appalled at the reach. Now you can see how they can get to very young children mm. and how they can get a message of bye, bye, bye. So what we have to do is we have to get, as parents, we have to get in front of it. Two tricks. <laughs> they're not tricks. They're strategies. First of all, allowance. Allowance is the best tool you have to getting away from saying no when you're in a store. So uh, my daughters got allowance starting at age eight. And one of them loves purses and still does to this day. And we were in the mall and she saw a purse in the coach store. And she said, oh my God, mommy, look at that purse. Isn't it beautiful? And I said, it's gorgeous. She said, can we go look at it? I said, sure. We walked up to the window. She was getting very excited because she's thinking she has corralled me. Yeah, she, yeah. It is to die for, Mom. I said, well, I don't know about that, but it is a good-looking purse. She turned to me and she said, Mommy, can we buy it? And I said, I don't know. Can you? Oh, look at you, Mom. You're cruel. Uh -huh. And she looked at me with complete disgust. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Allowance is a wonderful strategy for allowing children to make decisions about what's really important to them and takes you out of the game of always saying no to them. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't started allowance, you need to definitely take a look at it and incorporate it because it is one way to take a decision, to take the no out of your hands and put it into your child's hands because that's what you want, right? You don't want a college age adult who can't um, control, cut back or stop excessive money use. Yeah, You yeah. want a child who knows how to delay gratification. So the other thing I would say, especially today, because the game is different today, uh, if you're allowing your child to watch the YouTube videos 
and you're giving them a little bit of independence as they work through these games, you have to be careful for in-app purchases. That is a marketing strategy to get your child excited about spending money. And it's it, it comes in the form of um, incentives and rewards, and it's not. It's simply spending money. So the second thing, don't give your credit card away uh, to your child. Understand if they want to make a purchase, they have to explain it to you. Remember, in-app purchases are abstract purchases. Your child doesn't have the gray matter in their brain to understand that this is a concrete purchase where money gets spent. It's up to you until they get to that point where they can understand it. It's up to you to get in front of it. And then finally, you can give them the opportunity to pay for it. You want to do an in-app purchase, then it has to come out of your allowance. Okay. Awesome. So it's the battle us versus the marketers. Right. (laughs) All right, Susan, how can we find you and follow you? You can follow me at my blog, which is susanbeecham.com. And you can find Money Savvy Generation's award-winning products and tools at moneysavvy.com. All right, that wraps it up. If you ever have a question you want us to answer in No Dumb Questions, just let me know. If there's a guest you want me to try to get on the show, reach out anytime. Or if you need help talking to the kids about money, this is what we're here for. This podcast is for you. We raise a glass now and we say cheers to being financially confident women. Have a great weekend.